0: A few minutes ago, Matthew 13, the parable of the weeds or the parable of the tares. We'll spend some time there in that text. Good to see everybody here today. Hope you're doing well. And it's uh, always good to be with you. What do you do with the parts of the Bible you don't like? What do you do with them? Well, you can look back in history and you can see some different things that some people have done with them. I mentioned Three weeks ago, I think, three or four weeks ago when I started this, I I mentioned to you a second century heretic, that's what he was called, named Marcion, and uh, Marcion was somebody who who believed in the, you know, you had the God of the Old Testament, a God of judgment, and then you had the God of the New Testament, who's a God of love, and he couldn't see how you could reconcile those two images of God, and so... He took out anything in the New Testament that reminded him of the Old Testament, and he had a, a cut-up Bible, essentially. He had a, his own version of the, of the New Testament. And Marcion, I think, was rightly condemned by the church because they thought he was taking the Word of God and kind of shaping it to what he wanted it to be rather than what it was. And so Marcion was condemned as a heretic by the early church. Marcionite heresy is what that's called. More recently, though, in our own time, there were some folks 20, 30 years ago, you may have heard of them, they called themselves, they styled themselves the Jesus Seminar. This was a group of religious scholars who took, uh, took it upon themselves to to take, especially focused on Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they, they took the ministry of Jesus, the Jesus who's portrayed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament, and they they embarked on what they call the quest for the historical Jesus. And what they said that they were doing is they were trying to separate fiction about Jesus, stories about Jesus, from the Jesus who actually was. And so they said much of what we have in the New Testament, especially what we have in the gospel accounts, is not actually historical. It's fake. It's just not true, whatever. And so they tore the gospel accounts apart. Apart and they eventually produced their own gospel, their own Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, their own version. And they they were on the front of Time magazine. This is a big deal back 30 years or so ago. What they would do, and this may may sound familiar if you follow this at all. You may remember some of this. What they would do is they would take all the the things that were said about Jesus and the things that Jesus said, the sayings of Jesus, and they would vote on in this panel of scholars, and they would vote on. On the saying of Jesus, and they had a, a color coded system that they would use. And I don't, you know, like red, for example, if they, if they put a red pebble in, that was saying this is 100% accurate, this is what Jesus said. And so they had these various codes that they assigned to their level of confidence. And at the end of it, they're, they're, I think they had four levels, and the one was this is almost certainly something Jesus said. The uh, second level was Jesus probably didn't say it, but it's consistent with what we know of Jesus. The third one was he didn't say it, and it's, it, it could be consistent with something that he may have said. And then the fourth level was he didn't say it, and it's not anything that he would have ever said. So when they got to the end of it, they published their Bible. They published their Gospels. And only 18% of what you have in your Bible actually made the cut. 18%. 82% of your, what your text says that Jesus actually said, they said that's not consistent with who he actually was. I hope that bothers you a little bit. I don't think anybody in here has that kind of Bible. I don't think that's something that you're going to engage in, that sort of cutting and pasting or excising from the portion of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the things you don't like. But... And so I think rightly, you and I stand in a bit of judgment on people like Marcy and in people like Jesus Seminar, and we say, man, how can you do that? How can you take the Bible and just kind of cut it up according to the way you want it to be, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty bad. You're going to discard it. Just, you know, have the guts to discard the whole thing. Don't pick and choose what you like. But what do we do? Not, do what, what, not what do they do. I know what they do. I think you and I ought to be more interested in what we do. And we don't do that. We don't take a pair of scissors, as Thomas Jefferson supposedly did with his, you know, his deistic version of God, and he you know, took out the miracles and took out the supernatural. But we don't do that sort of thing, right? We, we do it differently. Probably the way that you and I do it, so we don't take a literal pair of scissors, but rather we just do what you might call selective reading maybe maybe it's like selective application or well i don't really want that i don't think it could mean that because that bothers me or that goes against what i believe or what i'm doing and this is you know what jesus said i know it must be true but maybe you and i are tempted to do that and so instead of standing in judgment so much on these you know very progressive scholars of the new testament we ought to probably look back at ourselves and think you know, I don't really pay attention to that as much as I should. We come to one of those texts today, Matthew 13. And I want us to, I want us to think about what Jesus says really mostly at the end of this. But I want us to think about you know, the story as a whole. We'll focus in on this for a minute and make sure we understand the gist of the story here. This is called the parable of the weeds. All right? If you've got the text in front of you, we've already read it, so I'm not going to read it again to you. But the story that Jesus is telling here starts in verse 24, and he's telling this parable, the story. This is a, a section of the, of the New Testament where Jesus is telling kingdom stories. He's telling stories that illustrate certain aspects of his reign, of, of the kingdom. Parable of the soils, first part of the chapter, the seed fell on, wayside soil fell on stony ground, and so on. He continues on, and this one is about a farmer who planted seed in the field. This is a very basic story. So, planted some seed that he wanted, some wheat seed. And unbeknownst to him, the enemy came in one night and sowed some weeds in the field. Presumably to cut in on the harvest, because this is a particular kind of plant that when it grew out of the ground it would look a whole lot like wheat in the early stages of its development but as time went on it would eventually be obvious that it wasn't wheat but by then the roots would be so entangled with the with the wheat that if you tried to get the weeds out you would also pull the wheat out and so you couldn't do that you know it's just a basic story here but the point of it being that sometimes early on in the development of these plants they look alike but you can't pull the weeds out lest you hurt the good. That's not his spiritual point, of course, but that's the, as Jesus often tells these stories, he tells the story that would have made sense to them. They understand what he's talking about, and then he goes on and he makes some sort of spiritual point. Now, the, the, servants come to him and they say what do you want us to do we've realized well, what's happened you know it's gotten big enough now we can tell the difference between the wheat and, and and the weeds and and now we realize there are a lot of weeds in there there are a lot of weeds in there and the enemy's come in and he's done this what do you want us to do you want us to to pull the weeds up and he said no you can't do that because it's going to hurt the good as well and so what's, what's going to happen is at the harvest time we're going to pull everything up and at that point we'll separate the wheat from the weeds and we'll put the wheat in the barn and we'll put the weeds in the fire and they'll they'll burn up and everything will be okay at that point All right, then Jesus goes on and he explains it. This is one of the few parables Jesus actually told us exactly what he meant by it. And the explanation begins in verse 36 and goes through verse 43. And his explanation of of the parable is that when you look at the world, sometimes it is not immediately clear for you to be able to distinguish between people who are God's people and people who aren't. So when you go out there and look at the world, the Son of Man, that's Jesus, he's sowing the good seed in the world. And it's producing what he calls children of the kingdom. He's producing Christians, followers of Jesus. But the enemy, that is Satan, he's out there sowing a different kind of seed. And when that seed grows up, it produces sons of evil, sons of darkness, followers of Satan, if you will people who live in rebellion to the will of God. And so you've got these two, these two kinds of people out in the world. You've got sons of the kingdom, and then you've got sons of the evil one. And sometimes it's difficult to distinguish between the two. Both might do good works. Both might look in some ways to be similar. Jesus said our concern ought not be so much with rooting out of the world. We ought not be so concerned about rooting out the evil from the good, but rather reserving that for the end time." And this is his point. I want to look at the end of the story, or the end of the explanation of the story, because that's where he's getting to his main point. Look, if you've got your Bible there, look at verse 41. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father, He who has ears, let him hear. So, the story about weeds, the spiritual application is there is coming a harvest in which God will separate sons and daughters of the kingdom from those who are not. And that will be a day of judgment. Now, of particular interest for us as we're thinking about that other side of Jesus for a few weeks we're interested in this phrase it's in verse 42 right what do you do with this what do you do with verse 42 throw them into the fiery furnace and that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth you know it's interesting you look at this phrase I don't know how you feel about this we don't talk about this as much as we do some of the others I don't talk about this as much as I do some of the others And perhaps that's an area of neglect for me, for us, in that we avoid those things that are negative. We we have a tendency perhaps not to emphasize those things that Speak of judgment and fiery furnaces and weeping and gnashing of teeth. I mean, this is the same Jesus who held the children in his arms, right? This is the same Jesus who said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The same Jesus, right? The the meek and lowly in heart, you shall find rest unto your souls. I mean, this is the same Jesus. And yet out of that same mouth, he said, there's this fiery furnace and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What do we do with that? If you look at this, what you're going to find is Jesus actually talked about this more than you think. I believe you would find that. Just through a simple concordance study or word study or phrase study, you can find a lot of expressions like this coming from the mouth of Jesus and others talking about Jesus. But Matthew 13 and verse 50 in the next couple of stories down, I guess, the parable of the net, you see it down below verse 50, he gets to the end of that story and he says, he will throw them into the fiery furnace and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So it's not like Jesus just said it once and kind of, it's just kind of a throwaway phrase. He didn't talk about it again. Actually, eight verses below, he says it again. Then you've got passages like this in Revelation. The book of Revelation has a lot of this kind of stuff in it. Revelation 9, verse 2, listen to this. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. In Revelation nineteen twenty, hear this, and the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Remember that one? One more from Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This fiery furnace idea is not just exclusive to this one verse. Jesus uses it a couple of times and John in seeing these visions in the book of Revelation sees this something resembling a fiery furnace that burns with you know, sulfur. It's just, it's, 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 it's in different places, right? You've got more than just... It's not just an isolated thing. You can say, well, you know, I don't know what he meant there, but at least we don't have to deal with it more than once. Well, we've got to deal with it more than once. We've got to deal with it multiple times. We've got to, we've got to think, okay, it must have been important enough for Jesus to have mentioned it on multiple occasions. So you've got the fiery furnace idea. And then you've got this weeping and gnashing of teeth. Of course, this is very expressive language to describe people who are caught in a hopeless situation of characterized by agony and pain and fear, weeping, crying, and the gnashing of teeth because of pain, presumably, or hopelessness. Something bad is going on to create that kind of response. So the weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew 8 and verse 12, actually, from the mouth of Jesus, we have these words. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Down below, the text we read earlier, verse 50, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. One more, Matthew 25 and verse 30. Remember the parable of the talents, the five-talent man, the two-talent man, the one-talent man, you know, the master left him with this weight of gold or weight of money, and he went into a far country, and he came back. Five-talent men had used his to, to gain another five. The two-talent man had gained another two. The one-talent man had hit his in the ground. And the master came back, and there was a reckoning there. And at the end of that, he takes this one-talent man. Here's the story, Matthew 25 and verse 30. He tells those to cast the worthless servant, that is, the, ta- the, the man who did not use his talent, Cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Fiery furnaces and weeping and gnashing of teeth. I did not go and check my Jesus Seminar Bible, but I'm guessing these were not in the 18%. What do you think? And Quite honestly, if I... We're taking upon myself to take it upon myself to to, to create a Bible that I liked or that, that spoke to me personally or that was one I wanted to, to preach from or teach from or read from primarily. They wouldn't make the cut for me either. Would they make yours? Maybe they maybe they would. I'm I'm just talking about from a purely human perspective. This is the Bible that I want. But if from a human perspective, maybe they wouldn't make that cut where I would say, these are the ones that I really want to be there, you know? What do we do with what Jesus said? So I want to spend the rest of our time just thinking about a couple of things. A couple of things Jesus might say to our judgment verse culture, things that he might say to us in the church who are uncomfortable or maybe don't hear enough about or maybe don't like to read about or think about verses like these that I've just mentioned to you. We don't like to think about Jesus talking about hell. We don't like to think about his mentioning fiery furnaces and weeping and gnashing of teeth and smoke rising from this pit, right? These aren't, these aren't expressions that give you the warm fuzzies. But I think Jesus, I'm fully confident Jesus has something to say to us. One of the things... That this story teaches us, and we'll get to that last expression, but one of the things that this story teaches us certainly is this, and that is God is perfectly aware of who is one of his children, and he knows full well those who aren't. That's that's part of the story. You know, you 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 got the the field is the word is the world, and you got good seed being sown, you've got bad seed being sown, you got sons and daughters of the kingdom, you got sons and daughters of the evil one. And so you've got different people out in the world, and sometimes it's hard for us to know, and it's not our job to know. You know we're, we're not on the committee that determines who's a child of God and who isn't. So that's not our job to go out here and make these kinds of determinations. But, and I think probably Jesus is dealing with this kind of, this kind of question in the, in the heart of the disciples, that, you know, what's going to happen? How's God going to sort all this out? How's he going to determine who is in the kingdom and who isn't? And And Jesus tells the story to answer that at least partially. But his, his, his point through the first part of the story at least is this. One of the takeaways is this. God knows. Now here in the story, the field is the world. The field is not the church. And so his primary point isn't that he can tell who in this building this morning is a child of God and who isn't, though that would be true as well. His bigger point is that in the world, sometimes it's difficult to distinguish between a son or daughter of the kingdom and a son or daughter of the evil one. It's hard because various people do good works. Lots of people who don't believe in Christ, a lot lot of people who don't believe in God do a lot of good works. But Jesus is teaching us through this story that God knows. But I guess we ought to apply it a little bit closer to home, shouldn't we? That in this building this morning, in an audience of 300 and something, we've got folks here who aren't in the kingdom, I'm guessing. God knows us. There are people who sit in church pews every Sunday and who sing the songs and they talk the talk and... At least outwardly, they walk the walk while they're here, but there are people who sit in their pews, probably our pews, close to home, our pews in this room who outwardly seem to be sons or daughters of the king, but they're not. God knows that. One of the the teachings of this story is God knows that. He knows who the real children of the king are. but getting to what I I believe is his primary point is that Jesus believes this is important for us to get I I hope you'll hear this even if it makes us squirm a bit I hope that all of us will hear this Jesus believes not only believes but he emphasizes that there is a real future reckoning That this world as it is will not always exist. That there is coming a time where this world as we know it will be interrupted once again by God's presence in a way that it has been in the past in certain ways when God intervened in time and space to make his presence known. God certainly did that at a moment in time when he said, let there be light. God created the world. God has stepped in at various times in history. His presence is always here. But God has made himself known in times of the flood of Genesis 6. Certainly, especially through the ministry of Jesus when God took upon him human flesh. But the Bible often speaks of a future time. In fact, I'd urge you to read the New Testament sometime and just point out, acknowledge, write down, highlight, whatever, all those points in the New Testament where the biblical writers speak of that day, that coming day, that moment, the twinkling of an eye. The First Thessalonians 4 passages where, where, where Paul says, don't worry about those who've died. They're not going to miss out. Jesus himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with a trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Paul is talking to a church that was confused about What's happening, uh, confused about the future and what he's teaching them, what he's teaching us is that this world as it is will not always exist. There's going to be a point in time where he calls it here a harvest. He'll call it a reckoning. In Matthew 25, he'll call it a judgment scene. In Revelation 20, he calls it the great white throne. However, it's referred to. It's referred to in different ways. But you've got this idea that Jesus is coming again. He's coming again. He is going to enter our time and space in visible form once again, and that will be what what the Bible calls in different ways the day of judgment, the end time, the day of the Lord. Jesus believed that. Probably to you and me, what this would say is we need to live our lives in view of, not in fear of, God's people don't need to fear the day in the sense that we, we shrink back from it in, in, in this kind of um, debilitating fear. But we live with a constant awareness of, in view of, the fact that Jesus is coming again. And that will be a day of reckoning. It will be a day in which God does separate those who are his from those who aren't. So many of the parables Jesus told in Matthew 13, and then if you were to look in Matthew 25, all three of the stories he tells in Matthew 25, which, by the way, was the very last week of the Lord's life prior to the crucifixion. In Matthew 25, he told three stories. He told the parable of the bridesmaids. Five were wise and five were foolish. The wise were those who prepared for the coming of the groom. That's Jesus The five who were foolish were foolish because they did not prepare. The next story is the parable of the talents we talked about a moment ago. The master goes away into a far country. Two of the servants were prepared for his return. One was not. And then the parable of the judgment where he talks about um, the Son of Man coming in his glory and separating them from uh, one from the other as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. You remember that story in Matthew 25? The last week of his life, just shortly before Jesus was crucified. In fact, some of the last teaching that he did, Matthew 25, you know what he's talking about? He's talking about get ready for judgment. There's coming a day. There's coming a day. Get ready for that. This is the last week of his life. I'm talking Monday or Tuesday before he dies on Friday. What's he talking about? It's almost like Jesus is, I mean, I know he knew all along, but it's, it's almost like he's, he's realizing, I've only got a few days left. What do I need to teach these people? And he teaches them about, get ready. Get ready for that day, it's coming. And so, in our story, what do we do with this? We've got to think about the fiery furnace. We've got to think about what that means. We've got to think about weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Bible uses different descriptive phrases and terms to talk about that dwelling place of those who live and die in rebellion to him, those who persist in their obstinance and hard-headedness. Hell, Gehenna, the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, the place where the worm dies not, as he said on one occasion, a place of suffering. The worst thing about that dwelling place will be that it is a place where God is not it is a place where the book of Revelation describes it as where the cup of God's wrath is poured out without mixture. Uh, that's a graphic way of saying God's wrath will be poured out in a way that is undiluted. It won't, be mixed by His, it won't be tempered by His love, His grace, and His mercy, but rather the infinite wrath of God will be poured out on those who live and die and begging to Him. What do we do with this? What do we do with this? I think as God's people today, we've got to recognize that Jesus emphasized this and so we must. If we're not followers of Jesus, maybe what we need to hear is we need to, we need to hear the word of Jesus, the one who loves us desperately, but we need to hear his words coming to us not with this kind of angry and condescending and exclusive kind of an attitude, but rather spoken with all of his love and his grace and his mercy. And I think spoken with tears flowing down his cheeks as he says to the world, I desperately want you to be with me eternally. But not everybody will be because not everybody will come to faith and obedience. There will be some who persist in rebellion and hard-headedness, and hard-heartedness. There will be people who shake their fists in the face of a loving God and say, I don't want to do it your way, I want to do it mine. And to those who persist in that kind of rebellion, Jesus speaks these words, he says, there is coming a harvest. And on that day of harvest, God will separate those who are truly his from those who aren't. That other side of Jesus, that other side of Jesus. This is a Jesus who speaks of fiery furnaces, but he does so because he loves us. You know, it wouldn't be loving if he didn't talk to us about this, would it? He wouldn't truly love us if He didn't tell us, if He didn't warn us about an impending judgment for all those who live in rebellion to Him. So today, I think this message ought to be one of, probably that strikes us in different ways. Maybe it strikes us, if we're in Christ, it ought to cause us to, not to fear, but it ought to cause us to, to sit up straight, to, to look at ourselves But probably more importantly to recognize that God has put us here for just a short time where we might be used as his conduits to share, to to spread, to communicate his love and his grace and yes, also his judgment and his holiness. For us to use our influence and our opportunities and our words to speak words of grace and mercy and love into the hearts and lives of people around us who may not know him. So even if we're in Christ, this ought to, this ought to I don't know, there, there ought to be a spirit in us that says, this ought to make me take this seriously. The urgency of faith, the urgency of obedience, the urgency of, of sharing the gospel with people who don't know the Lord because this world as it is will not exist indefinitely. There is coming that point in time and space where God will step in again in a way that we've never experienced. And there will be this great harvest, this great reckoning. if you're not a Christian today, we invite you to come to Jesus Christ. He is, a, uh, he is a God of love. He's a God of mercy and grace. He's a God of holiness. He's a God of justice. He's a God of judgment. We invite you to come to him with faith in your heart trusting in him as your lord and savior putting him on in baptism as you turn away from your past whatever that past involves confessing the name of Jesus as your lord and savior we invite you today to come to him because you recognize the just the temporary nature of the world we live in it's just not worth it's just not worth it to live in rebellion to him now if you need to Come to Jesus Christ for baptism, we invite you. If you need to come back to him today, we invite you to come. Let's stand and let's sing this song.